0: Section sixty-seven of the expedition of Humphrey Clinker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Lynn. The Expedition of Humphrey Clinker by Tobias Smollett. Section sixty-seven to Doctor Lewis. Dear Lewis, this Mahago is more paradoxical than ever. The late gulp he had of his native air seems to have blown fresh spirit into all his polemical faculties. I congratulated him the other day on the present flourishing state of his country, observing that the Scots were now in a fair way to wipe off the national reproach of poverty, and expressing my satisfaction at the happy effects of the Union, so conspicuous in the improvement of their agriculture, commerce, manufactures, and manners. The lieutenant, screwing up his features into a look of dissent and disgust, commented on my remarks to this effect. Those who reproach a nation for its poverty, when it is not owing to the profligacy or vice of the people, deserve no answer. The Lacedaemonians were poorer than the Scots when they took the lead among all the free states of Greece, and were esteemed above them all for their valour and their virtue. The most respectable heroes of ancient Rome, such as Fabricius, Cincinnatus, and Regulus, were poorer than the poorest freeholder in Scotland, and there are at this day individuals in North Britain, one of whom can produce more gold and silver than the whole Republic of Rome could raise at those times when her public virtue shone with unrivalled lustre. And poverty was so far from being a reproach, that it added fresh laurels to her fame, because it indicated a noble contempt of wealth which was proof against all the arts of corruption. If poverty be a subject for reproach, it follows that wealth is the object of esteem and veneration. In that case there are Jews and others in Amsterdam and London, enriched by usury, peculation, and different species of fraud and extortion, who are more estimable than the most virtuous and illustrious members of the community, an absurdity which no man in his senses will offer to maintain. Riches are certainly no proof of merit, Nay, they are often, if not most commonly, acquired by persons of sordid minds and mean talents, nor do they give any intrinsic worth to the possessor, but on the contrary tend to pervert his understanding, and render his morals more depraved. But granting that poverty were really matter of reproach, it cannot be justly imputed to Scotland. No country is poor that can supply its inhabitants with the necessaries of life, and even afford articles for exportation scotland is rich in natural advantages it produces every species of provision in abundance vast herds of cattle and flocks of sheep with a great number of horses prodigious quantities of wool and flax with plenty of copse wood and in some parts large forests of timber the earth is still more rich below than above the surface it yields inexhaustible stores of coal free stone marble lead iron copper and silver with some gold The sea abounds with excellent fish and salt to cure them for exportation, and there are creeks and harbours around the whole kingdom for the convenience and security of navigation. The face of the country displays a surprising number of cities, towns, villas, and villages swarming with people, and there seems to be no want of art, industry, government, and police. Such a kingdom can never be called poor in any sense of the word, though there may be many others more powerful and opulent but the proper use of those advantages, and the present prosperity of the Scots, you seem to derive from the union of the two kingdoms. I said I supposed he would not deny that the appearance of the country was much mended, that the people lived better, had more trade, and a greater quantity of money circulating since the union than before. I may safely admit these premises, answered the lieutenant, without subscribing to your inference. The difference you mention I should take to be the natural progress of improvement. Since that period other nations, such as the Swedes, the Danes, and in particular the French, have greatly increased in commerce without any such cause assigned. Before the Union there was a remarkable spirit of trade among the Scots, as appeared in the case of their Darien company, in which they had embarked no less than 400,000 pounds sterling, and in the flourishing state of the maritime towns in Fife and on the eastern coast enriched by their trade with France, which failed in consequence of the Union. The only solid commercial advantage reaped from that measure was the privilege of trading to the English plantations. Yet, excepting Glasgow and Dumfries, I don't know any other Scotch towns concerned in that traffic. In other respects I can see the Scots were losers by the Union. They lost the independency of their State, the greatest prop of national spirit. They lost their Parliament, and their courts of justice were subjected to the revision and supremacy of an English tribunal. "'Softly, Captain,' cried I, "'you cannot be said to have lost your own Parliament, while you are represented in that of Great Britain.' "'True,' said he, with a sarcastic grin, "'in debates of national competition, the sixteen peers and forty-five commoners of Scotland must make a formidable figure in the scale against the whole English legislature.' Be that as it may, I observed while I had the honour to sit in the lower house, the Scotch members had always the majority on their side. I understand you, sir, said he. They generally side with the majority, so much the worse for their constituents, but even this evil is not the worst they have sustained by the Union. Their trade has been saddled with grievous impositions, and every article of living severely taxed to pay the interest of enormous debts contracted by the English in support of measures and connections in which the Scots had no interest nor concern. I begged he would at least allow that by the union the Scots were admitted to all the privileges and immunities of English subjects, by which means multitudes of them were provided for in the army and navy, and got fortunes in different parts of England and its dominions. All these, said he, become English subjects to all intents and purposes, and are in a great measure lost to their mother country.' the spirit of rambling and adventure has been always peculiar to the natives of scotland if they had not met with encouragement in england they would have served and settled as formerly in other countries such as muscovy sweden denmark poland germany france piedmont and italy in all which nations their descendants continue to flourish even at this day by this time my patience began to fail and i exclaimed for god's sake what has england got by this union which you say has been so productive of misfortune to the scots great and manifold are the advantages which england derives from the union said Lismahago, in a solemn tone first and foremost the settlement of the protestant succession a point which the english ministry drove with such eagerness that no stone was left unturned to cajole and bribe a few leading men to cram the union down the throats of the scottish nation who were surprisingly averse to the expedient they gained by it a considerable addition of territory extending their dominion to the sea on all sides of the island thereby shutting up all back doors against the enterprises of their enemies they got an accession of above a million of useful subjects constituting a never-failing nursery of seamen, soldiers, labourers, and mechanics, a most valuable acquisition to a trading country, exposed to foreign wars, and obliged to maintain a number of settlements in all the four quarters of the globe. In the course of seven years, during the last war, Scotland furnished the English army and navy with 70,000 men, over and above those who migrated to their colonies or mingled with them at home in the civil departments of life this was a very considerable and seasonable supply to a nation whose people had been for many years decreasing in number, and whose lands and manufactures were actually suffering for want of hands. I need not remind you of the hackneyed maxim that to a nation in such circumstances a supply of industrious people is a supply of wealth, nor repeat an observation which is now received as an eternal truth, even among the English themselves, that the Scots who settle in South Britain are remarkably sober, orderly and industrious. I allowed the truth of this remark, adding that by their industry, economy, and circumspection, many of them in England, as well as in her colonies, amassed large fortunes, with which they returned to their own country, and this was so much lost to South Britain. "'Give me leave, sir,' said he, to assure you, that in your fact you are mistaken, and in your deduction erroneous. Not one in two hundred that leaves Scotland ever returns to settle in his own country, and the few that do return carry thither nothing that can possibly diminish the stock of south britain for none of their treasure stagnates in scotland there is a continual circulation like that of the blood in the human body and england is the heart to which all the streams which it distributes are refunded and returned nay in consequence of that luxury which our connection with england hath greatly encouraged if not introduced all the produce of our lands and all the profits of our trade are engrossed by the natives of south britain for you will find that the exchange between the two kingdoms is always against scotland and that she retains neither gold nor silver sufficient for her own circulation the scots not content with their own manufactures and produce which would very well answer all necessary occasions seem to vie with each other in purchasing superfluities from england such as broadcloth velvets stuffs, silks lace, furs, jewels, furniture of all sorts, sugar, rum, tea, chocolate, and coffee. In a word, not only every mode of the most extravagant luxury, but even many articles of convenience which they might find as good and much cheaper in their own country. For all these particulars, I conceive, England may touch about one million sterling a year. I don't pretend to make an exact calculation. Perhaps it may be something less, and perhaps a great deal more. The annual revenue arising from all the private estates of Scotland cannot fall short of a million sterling, and, I should imagine, their trade will amount to as much more. I know the linen manufacture alone returns near half a million, exclusive of the home consumption of that article. If, therefore, North Britain pays a balance of a million annually to England, I insist upon it that country is more valuable to her in the way of commerce than any colony in her possession over and above the other advantages which I have specified. Therefore, they are no friends, either to England or to truth, who affect to appreciate the northern part of the United Kingdom. I must own I was at first a little nettled to find myself schooled in so many particulars. Though I did not receive all his assertions as gospel, I was not prepared to refute them, and I cannot help now acquiescing in his remarks so far as to think that the contempt for Scotland, which prevails too much on this side the tweed, is founded on prejudice and error. After some recollection, "'Well, Captain,' said I, "'you have argued stoutly for the importance of your own country. "'For my part, I have such a regard for our fellow subjects of North Britain "'that I shall be glad to see the day when your peasants can afford "'to give all their oats to their cattle, hogs, and poultry, "'and indulge themselves with good wheat and loaves, "'instead of such poor, unpalatable, and inflammatory diet.' Here again I brought myself into a premunire with the disputative Caledonian. He said he hoped he should never see the common people lifted out of that sphere for which they were intended by nature and the course of things, that they might have some reason to complain of their bread if it were mixed, like that of Norway, with sawdust and fish-bones, but that oatmeal was, he apprehended, as nourishing and salutary as wheat flour, and the Scots in general thought it at least as savoury he affirmed that a mouse which in the article of self-preservation might be supposed to act from infallible instinct would always prefer oats to wheat as appeared from experience for in a place where there was a parcel of each that animal has never begun to feed upon the latter till all the oats were consumed for their nutritive quality he appealed to the hale robust constitutions of the people who lived chiefly upon oatmeal and instead of being inflammatory, he asserted that it was a cooling subacid, balsamic and mucilaginous, insomuch that in all inflammatory distempers recourse was had to water-gruel and flummery made of oatmeal. "'At least,' said I, "'give me leave to wish them such a degree of commerce as may enable them to follow their own inclinations.' "'Heaven forbid!' cried this philosopher." Woe be to that nation where the multitude is at liberty to follow their own inclinations. Commerce is undoubtedly a blessing, while restrained within its proper channels, but a glut of wealth brings along with it a glut of evils. It brings false taste, false appetite, false wants, profusion, finality, contempt of order, engendering a spirit of licentiousness, insolence, and faction, that keeps the community in continual ferment, and in time destroys all the distinctions of civil society, so that universal anarchy and uproar must ensue. Will any sensible man affirm that the national advantages of opulence are to be sought on these terms? No, sure, but I am one of those who think that by proper regulations commerce may produce every national benefit without the allay of such concomitant evils. So much for the dogmata of my friend Lismahago whom I described the more circumstantially as I firmly believe he will set up his rest in Monmouthshire. Yesterday, while I was alone with him, he asked, in some confusion, if I should have any objection to the success of a gentleman and a soldier, provided he should be so fortunate as to engage my sister's affection. I answered without hesitation that my sister was old enough to judge for herself, and that I should be very far from disapproving any resolution she might take in his favour. His eyes sparkled at this declaration. He declared he should think himself the happiest man on earth to be connected with my family, and that he should never be weary of giving me proofs of his gratitude and attachment. I suppose Tabby and he are already agreed, in which case we shall have a wedding at Brambleton Hall, and you shall give away the bride. It is the least thing you can do, by way of atonement, for your former cruelty to that poor love-sick maiden, who has been so long a thorn in the side of yours. Matt Bramble, September 20. We have been at Buxton, but, as I did not much relish, either the company or the accommodations, and had no occasion for the water, we stayed but two nights in the place. End of section 67.